I mean, uh, if the Facebook video thing will work this time, I, I listen. I, you can make fun of my dial-up internet all you want, but it is reliable. Bing, bing. <laughs> listen, it's reliable. HughesNet is the wave of the future, my friend. Uh, who is that? Yeah, knocking on the indoor door of my house. Like, somebody had to have gone through Why the front you, door, uh, and then an hour knocking on the door of the manic cave. Now you're going to show courtesy after breaking and entering? Yeah, who is... Who's, oh, oh, hey, guys. I uh, I just... I was in Burbank, and uh, just started driving, and I thought, you know what? I'll just shoot across the country and come record an episode of Tim Bell Pod. Wow, you must smell like shit. You didn't bring any clothes or anything. <laughs> it wasn't planned out. Uh-huh. Did um, you do the Brian Kendrick meth- method and uh, masturbate to keep yourself awake? <laughs> just just get some protein powder and mix it in a water bottle, and that's how you ended up here? I would do that on the way home. Yeah. Micah, you're um, you're in my seat. Oh, am I? You're, you're, you mean the seat that you haven't been in for yeah, months no, and months you, and you months and you? months? You're in my fucking seat! It's really gotten to you out there. Fuck I you. know. Welcome to Ten Bell Pod. I'm Nicolessa or Alexander, and I am absolutely prefect. Fucking typo. <laughs> I am uh, literally, literally inside of the Manning Cave for the first time in a long time with Micah J. Loving. Yeah, and um, I'm gonna start doing a thing since we totally uh, record earlier than when it's posted. Oh, I'm what? sorry. To, I'm, I didn't mean to give it away. <laughs> Um, I'm going to give predictions each time by the time uh, you guys listen to this. So by the time you guys listen to this, Adam Sandler will have an Oscar nomination. <laughs> there it is. There it is. We are also joined by the Carl Gotch of the Essential Boy Scout Knots, the Nikki Six of Trail Mix, the Fatty Arbuckle of Turnbuckles. I, I'm running, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm running yeah. out. I'm now running out. Uh, it's, it's, it's the Mad Scout Jake Manning, everybody. Oh, I like that Nikki Six one because in the High Spots 4... Because they're, you know, there's the new Japan Four, which is Chris Jericho, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, and Chris. There was, there was, we had the high spots for, which was me, Mike Lee, Charlie Dreamer, and Caleb Connolly, <laughs> and uh, we we had different iterations of that, and then we also said that we were members of Nikki Six, I mean of uh, Motley Crue, and I, and of course I'm Nikki Six because I kind of run the show. Mike Lee is Mick Mars because it's the quiet ones you got to worry w- worry for, <sighs> yeah. and then uh, Charlie Dreamer of course is Vince Neil because he's got the blonde hair, and then Caleb Connolly is Tommy Lee because he for sure would drive a boat with his dick. <laughs> <laughs> That's some Caleb Connolly shit right there. I'm really glad that we eventually got to the point where I figured out the context because when you said Nikki Six, I didn't know who the fuck that was. <laughs> so Jake got in the Motley you know, Crew stuff. It's Nikki Six from Nikki Six. Motley <laughs> Crew. Really I got this now. I don't have to ask. All right. Well, we are kicking off 2020 by discussing a world-renowned country music artist, a man who saved the life of Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Wade Boggs. He gave Shawn Michaels the Heartbreak Kid moniker. And he was one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. It's Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning. And according to Bobby Heenan, he had a perfect mane of hair, perfect 2020 vision, and even perfect teeth, which was weird. 
Because he's from Minnesota. That was that was the weird part. They don't have good water there, which is weird because they got a land of ten thousand lakes. Yeah, I want to. I know Nick, you're in a good mood and everything, but I want to see if we. I'm going to tell you this and then see if it puts you on tilt for the rest of the episode. Uh, okay. All right. This is Mr. Perfect's review of No Holds Barred, starring Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I just saw Hogan's new movie, No Holds Barred. I enjoyed it. It was good. It was very good, but it's not quite. Perfect. Nick, how do you feel about him kind of slamming it? I mean, it's not perfect, though. It's it's a fair criticism. It's not perfect. (laughs) But it is, you know, top five, ten movies all time. Okay, yeah, see. Curtis. Michael Henning was born March 28th, 1958 in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. And on this day, God created a math equation because also born on this day was Olympic gymnast Bart Connor, two-time gold medalist, and Billboard chart-topping singer Orn Juice Jones. And if you get a great athlete and a great singer together and combine them, oh. also born on that same day, Kurt fucking Henning. Let's see what you did there. <laughs> Kurt was one of five kids with his dad being AWA legend Larry the Axe Henning and his mom Irene the Battle Axe Henning. Am I right, fellas? Uh, No, ma'am. Is that what we're fucking doing? (laughs) Kurt was childhood friends with Ravishing Rick Rude, as we covered in our Rick Rude episode, and both were part of that legendary crew of Minnesota wrestlers that kind of all came up at the same time. Tom Zink, Brady Boone, Nikita Koloff, John Nort, the Road Warriors, and Barry Darson. Kurt started amateur wrestling around six years old and prepped to be part of Robbinsdale High's championship pedigree like his father before him as well as his future boss, Vern Gagne. Through high school, Kurt was like, he was an okay wrestler, but he lettered in both wrestling and football. Also in high school, Kurt met his wife, Lenise, who he'd marry in 79, stay with for his entire life, and they had four kids, including WWE wrestler and Intercontinental Champion, just like his pops, Curtis Axel. You ever work with Curtis Axel? Yeah, I was, we're going to get into this eventually, no, might as well. And, and it's weird because people have asked me multiple times, like, did you ever get to work, Kurt Hennig? And I go, <laughs> you know di- the timeline. Yeah, you know the timeline. How long do you think I've been wrestling? How long do you think I've been doing this? But I'm meaning that in the opposite way that Tommy Rich said it one time. I'm not too old for this shit. Perfect played some junior college football at Normandale, but the by God Blue Chippers football career ended there. And after that, he would decide to hop into the family business. Aside from being around wrestling his entire life, and I'm sure getting a ton of pointers from his dad, Kurt went to Vern Gagne's wrestling camp and also received training from Brad Riggins. Good old, more farm training. Just train on that farm and you're fucking good. Throw bales of hay around and work out in a barn and, you know, that's how it works. Fun fact. <laughs> you could feel free to cut this if you want, if it, if it gets a little too lengthy, but uh, did you know that comedian Julian McCullough is related to Vern Gagne. Oh, no. Yeah, I think Vern is his uncle, oh. if I'm not mistaken. I remember him talking about it, and he's actually been to the farm that had the ring in <laughs> oh, it. Oh, shit, like, man, that's cool. Like, like he, was ta- he was talking about that, and he was... The only thing I got out of it is that Vern possibly had sex with his brother's wife. That's the only thing uh, I really. Oh, okay. That's the only thing I really. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, because yeah, yeah, apparently, throw, yeah, throw that in there. Come on, the, the, the product of his uh, brother and his wife's marriage produced a child that looked very more much like Vern. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he talked. But he did talk about like the farm and the and the barn and and all that stuff with the ring inside of it. So we had a nice conversation about that. That sounds wonderful. 
Cool Kurt Henning began his career on January 30th, 1980 in the AWA. Straight up looking like a Cabbage Patch doll. Yeah, his hair, man. It's gorgeous. Out the gates, he'd have matches against his trainer, Brad Regans, as well as Adrian Adonis and also Nacho Berea, who apparently lost every single match of his entire career. It's under for life, Jake. Mm-hmm. I got some stiff competition. <laughs> Jake's got the 10 DVD box set. <laughs> Learning everything he can. After about a year of working in Minnesota, Kurt would go work for Vince Sr. in New York, working his first match in WWF against Johnny Rods. WWE Hall of Famer, baby. He'd round out the rest of 81, working against the likes of Greg Valentine, Killer Khan, and Mr. Fuji. And I think Kurt meeting Mr. Fuji must have been like when Obi-Wan met Luke. (laughs) Like, the ribbing is strong with this one. One time he filled up somebody's hotel bathtub with mice oh <laughs> and i just i just i was just wondering where would you get hundreds of mice i think that's the real question in that fucking rip just just mice after his wwf run kurt would start 1982 over in portland brother aka don owens nwa pacific northwest territory there he teamed up with his dad and won the tag team titles and the clip i saw of larry the axe talking about this he was like the proudest papa of all time In late 82, Kurt would touch base back in AWA for just a minute, but then he would head back to the WWF. And for this run, the names he works with, like, they really jump up. You got Superstar Billy Graham, Eddie Gilbert, Don Morocco, Big John Studd. And on November 17th, he wrestled fucking Tiger Mask. It is only on clips. There's only highlights on the WWE Network that... And you, you get to see some of the glimpses. I mean, obviously, every exchange is smart athletic lightning fast but it's it's you only get a three minute clip and it's one of those where it's just like please give me more but uh also check out the eddie gilbert match for madison square garden 11 21 82 eddie who was pretty much a brawler later in his days but he could really matt wrestle and it's two young dudes whipping ass and also too i believe there is a short run where they tag together so that's an interesting combination two second generation wrestlers also at that time they were kind of probably seen as undersized yeah, but but obviously talented because this is definitely like during the times of the Rene Goulets and Bruno San Martin just coming off that and Pedro Morales, like big strapping guys and uh, to tag them together. It's like, oh, these this is our, our fiery young baby face right, yeah. tag team that, you know, people can get behind, but they're going to get their ass whipped. But, you know, just they're going to make a nice little comeback and and good little hands in the ring. And of course. Who else could you put Tiger Mask in the ring with? Yeah. <laughs> Especially the roster that the WWF had at the time. I mean, they brought in Dynamite Kids specifically. <laughs> they, they flew somebody from a different territory to come in just so Tiger Mask could have a good match because he was their light heavyweight champion because of, at that time, the, the working relationship with New Japan. So it was a very short list of guys that they had on the roster that could have worked for Tiger Mask, and Kurt was definitely one of them. Vince is calling that match in that little clip, and he goes, yeah. "What is?" He has a line. He goes, "Hmm, bet it's hot under that mask." <laughs> like, Thank you I- for having the same opinions on pro wrestling as my mom would. Vince, <laughs> yeah. like, what the fuck? Oh, well, he's just gonna be miserable under there. What? What? What was it? The commentary? What a maneuver! 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 And a hold. <laughs> so if you're into, you know, this era of wrestling and you think Kurt versus Tiger Mask is super cool, in 83, Kurt went back to Portland 
where he would get in the title picture, feuding over the Pacific Northwest heavyweight title with Dynamite fucking Kid. This is like a wrestling nerd's wet dream. But there's no footage of singles matches. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I still probably need to look through the Michael Gratchner footage because there is some Portland stuff in there, but I, I can't think of anything that pops directly in my head. I know we have some Kurt Heading Portland stuff about this time period, so there might be something that's out there floating around. But uh, yeah, it's just seeing a lot of that Portland stuff is just lost forever or sitting in Buddy Rose's wife's closet somewhere. Yeah. So. There's a couple YouTube clips. Look up Dynamite Kid will murder Kurt Henning. Cuts a promo on him. <laughs> uh, Dynamite Kid breaks Kurt Henning's neck, which is a six-man match. Dynamite hits a tombstone on Kurt that really does look fucking nasty. Kurt sells the crap out of it. He's in the ring, not moving. All three guys perch up on the turnbuckles like vultures. It's a cool as hell visual. And then a, a brawl breaks out. And then yet again, Dynamite flies off the top rope and drops a knee onto the supposedly crippled Kurt's neck. It's a fucking great angle and it looks brutal. And some of the tag matches, you do see, get to see Dynamite and Kurt go at it. And it's like Tiger Mask, man. You, they are they are so fast. It's, you know, the camera's not being able to keep up with it, and they're on the same page, and it's just beautiful stuff. But there's no single matches that I could find anywhere on the internet. But, man, you could tell they would they put on a show. And also, too, it's like two puzzle pieces coming together. Dynamite was always that guy that was very hard-hitting, uh, had no holes in his work whatsoever. Like, he was very believable. Knocked the crap out of you for real. And then Kurt, if you just, like, blew on him, he would... <laughs> oversell like a maniac <laughs> so it's like like the two people just coming together that that just looking for each other oh i like to knock the crap out of people look like i'm really hitting them oh really well i like uh to give the most ridiculous over-the-top <laughs> sell when you just even put a finger on me and then it cuts to the slow motion and they both stare at each other and goes, they find each other in a romantic embrace um two portland things to check out uh kurt versus the assassin in a coal miners glove match if you wanna, if you're a wrestler and you're learning how to sell a gimmick punch like brass knuckles or something, when Kurt gets the coal miner's glove and punches the assassin, it's like a bomb goes off. Not only does the assassin fly back, but Kurt flies back. It is, it seriously got a holy shit out of me. Must watch. And then in one of the weirdest matches I found, Kurt versus um, Sheik Abdullah. It's an Iranian death match, two out of three falls. And the only reason it's an Iranian death match is Kurt and the Sheik are tied up in uh, opposite corners with rope and then whoever gets out of their rope first can beat up the other one but they both got out of the rope at the same time and it turned into a normal match it's really fucking stupid <laughs> kurt would finish up 83 in new japan where he'd be in all those crazy tag team combinations that they did at the time my favorite was 12 10 83 kurt with bobby duncan and andre the giant losing to antonio noki hulk hogan and tatsumi fujinami yeah, the, i had that in my notes too it's it was like, like what the hell it's like a fucking pro bowl game or something <laughs> yeah, it's, right henning returned to the awa in 1984 and this is when kurt's career just takes off he had trained with some of the greats. He had some experience on the road in big matches. He'd said his prayers, taken his vitamins, done his push-ups, And from here, Kurt would go on a tear. Kurt would have matches against the likes of Nick Bockwinkel, Larry Zabisco. He'd have tag matches with his dad against the Road Warriors. And he'd even hop over to All Japan as part of 85's Real World Tag League Tournament. 
but Kurt's first big giant push would be tagging up with Big Scott Hall and beating Jimmy Garvin and Steve Regal on January 18, 1986, winning the AWA World Tag Team Championships. Don't you mean Mr. Excitement, Steve Regal? You don't, uh, have, to, you don't have to put any uh, you know, respect on his name, but at least put the <laughs> Mr. Excitement <laughs> on there. Kurt and Scott would defend those tag belts at the greatest show of all time, Wrestle Rock 86. Be there. At Wrestle Rock, Kurt and the Bat Guy face the Long Riders, Bill and Scott Irwin, who look like Melton Dew Somaliers. <laughs> Kurt wins this match with that beautiful missile drop kick he did, and then gets attacked by a motorcycle boot. Scott and Kurt would chug along defending the belts until May when they dropped them to Buddy Rose and Doug Somers. From there, Kurt would get a few AWA title shots against Stan Hansen. He lost an NWA title shot to Ric Flair. But that November, Kurt would head to Las Vegas to face AWA champion Nick Bockwinkel in a one-hour Broadway in a match that would put Kurt Henning on the pro wrestling map. This is the first time I watch it. Jake, did you rewatch it, or you just remember from the old days? Or? I just remember from the days. <laughs> so you got to keep in mind with a lot of the stuff we talk about here as – somebody who like trained to be a professional wrestler and then you like look back at you know wrestling footage and you know when it comes down to like well i've got all the wrestling footage in the entire world to look at like whose matches i'm going to look at kurt henning is at the top of the list so yeah i've seen clips of this match and multiple matches and multiple tag matches with scott hall and it's just it, it's amazing to put in context how early this was in his career and for him to be this good i mean now granted at this time like wrestling four five six years in the territorial system is a little bit different than wrestling four five six on the independent wrestling because he's working seven nights a week and probably twice on saturday twice on sunday so um he got very good very fast but just the talent is there and and especially being able to hang with someone like flair and bachwinkle at this period of time at this early juncture of his career is pretty incredible the second half of this Broadway really picks up in pace and brutality. Uh, about three-fourths of the way through, Kurt busts his head open on the ring post. Yeah. And then, like, a, a bloody, bloody <laughs> Kurt Henning. Just, he would control the last five minutes, and he locked Nick Bockwinkle in the Indian Deathlock for the final minute. But Nick sweats it out and survives a time limit draw. Now, one thing I do like about this match is, like, Kurt saves his drop kick to, like, the 49-minute mark of yeah. the match of how how big or how differently moves meant back then. I think they save a, just a regular suplex for, like, minute 57. I mean, and the crowd is just eating up every single, every single spot. I can imagine waiting 49 minutes for something that's gift file worthy. Like, that would just be horrendous. Like, Man. I can't imagine the, the awful reviews you would get for something like that. So, sorry, Nick Bockwinkle and Kurt Henning. I know you guys are the best to do it ever, but if you're not giving me a gift file within the first 20 minutes at least, come yeah, on, guys. 20 easily. First off, anything Kurt Henning does is gift file worthy. And second of all, fight the patriarchy. I'm getting that over. Okay. Okay. You didn't. Uh, you, okay. We got to do it more though. We really got to put it over. <laughs> That's why I had that dynamite drop in to give you to slide that right in. Alley oop. Kurt would once again meet Nick. Ba- I can't say the word Nick. Kurt would once again meet Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA World Heavyweight Title. This time at Super Clash on May second, nineteen eighty-seven. This time their match was thirty minutes ish. And it's pretty even throughout. Like, it's like a, I guess that was the story they were trying to do. It's like pretty evenly matched. Yep. Uh, 
However, number one contender for the winner of this match, Larry Zabisco, is sitting ringside, and Larry would slip Kurt a foreign object, taking jobs away from American objects like guns. Kurt decks Bockwinkle, who drops cold, and Kurt gets the pin and wins the AWA title. This is another problem with things. You're not getting the other side of the story if you listen to Larry after the match. He clearly went over to Kurt and gave him some advice. <laughs> And then Kurt used that advice to punch him really hard. Well, that that Come foreign, on. that foreign object uh, allegedly was uh, a roll of uh, coins, yeah. which were Canadian coins. Hence, why it's a foreign object. Oh so, shit! Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys remember this, or after the match, this whole like clusterfuck breaks. Yeah, it's out. chaotic horseshit. And they're like, we're, he's he's not gonna win the belt until we review the tape. Review the tape. We gotta review it, and then. But apparently they reviewed it, saw that he decked him with a roll of coins, and just yeah. didn't care. What do you know? What happened there? This is AWA in '87. <laughs> Can I? Do you want me to explain any of this goddamn shit? Well, the shit? thing that I read is the reason they did this stupid bullshit is because at the time Kurt actually had a WWF offer a little bit oh. earlier, and he was weighing his options about what to do. So they created this little window for him to make up his mind, and he finally decided to stay with AWA. I guess they promised him more and shit. And then it was like, all right, yeah, we watched the tape. We totally didn't see that. So <laughs> here you go, man. And they award him in the belt. No questions asked. Kurt would defend the belt the rest of 86 and all of 87 against the likes of Greg Gagne, Wahoo McDaniel, and Baron Von Roski. He also would go to Japan and defend it against Tiger Mask 2. So he got them all in there. Who uh, Tiger Mask 2, who some of you might know, was Masawa, who would go on to be one of the All Japan gods. But they have, they, uh, Kurt, I think it, it might be the earliest I've seen the perfect plex, but he's the perfect plex on Masawa and it's treated like another move and the match gets DQ'd or some shit. But it's pretty interesting. Kurt versus Masawa, which is another, if given the time dream match, it's good shit to look up. Kurt held the AWA title for just over a year before losing it to Jerry Lawler on May 9th, 1988. Lawler said this was not only his favorite match with Kurt, it was his favorite match of all time. It's an incredible match when you have uh, Jackie Fargo as the referee, <laughs> which with his history. Very strict it. referee. Well, like just like with that, the, the history of, of that and Fargo and, and Lawler and making sure it goes right. And it's, there's this beautiful moment where like Kurt takes a slingshot into the turnbuckle and just there's this, he hits the turnbuckle and he, does like this turn that just I, I don't know how he does it like I don't know how he moves his body in a particular way and it's just this incredible uh, sequence into the finish uh, it, it's something that I've tried to repeat and just I physically can't do it I've it, it's hard to describe because it's just once you see it you're like I don't even know how that happened like it was like a turn and then a face plant like you're basically flying in and then you have to turn yourself somehow in midair it's it's incredible. It's, it's a, a work great moment. It's it. It most certainly is. It's it's definitely one of the biggest moment in Jerry the King Lawler's career. And me, with me being such a fan of Jerry the King Lawler, and even the promos leading up to this, and like Kurt Hennig showing up on Memphis TV, destroying the set. Oh my god, it's so just, fucking amazing! Just <laughs> screaming into the microphone, and he just, beats up a Toyota dealership owner. Yeah, like <laughs> he it's, beats the shit. Just it, he goes completely nuts. He he looks like a maniac and oh, a madman. And just sets up for probably one of the most like like beautiful nights in Jerry the King Lawler's career. Like if you watch the TVs leading up to that with with Kurt's performance, with Jerry's performance, and how they just build it to this, you, you knew something special was going to happen on on that night, and 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 it did. And Kurt was a part of that magic. 
After dropping the title, Kurt was noticing the changing wrestling world. AWA had been long since raided by Vince and was failing. They had just put the belt on an older wrestler, a clear sign that they weren't quite planning for the future. And despite pressure from his dad and Vern to stay, Kurt was like, I, I'm a head out. Is that meme still relevant this year? Oh, the SpongeBob meme? <laughs> <laughs> it took me a minute. I think that's still floating around. All right, cool, cool. You're trying to be hip. Yeah, yeah, uh, especially when you say the things you just said. Kurt would have a meeting with Vincent Kennedy McMahon, and the story goes that Vince asked Kurt what he did. What was he good at? Kurt said he was great at everything, and that's when the Mr. Perfect gimmick was born, or they drew it out of a box. Both believable stories. <laughs> yeah, and Terry Taylor obviously ended up with Red Rooster yeah. at the same time, and we've all heard that Who story. knows what the real fucking thing is? Yeah. Well, definitely not the box of gimmicks. That's definitely, <laughs> not, definitely not true. Process of elimination, that one's out. I wasn't there, and I was six of the time, and I know it's false. So. so now in WWF, Kurt would hop on the house show loops. He'd do some TV spots as Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, but soon he'd drop his real name and would be packaged as just Mr. Perfect with the help of those legendary vignettes. So Mr. Perfect's vignettes started in 1988. And if anybody remembers a particular man named Bo Jackson and a series of Nike commercials called Bo Knows where Bo Jackson knows how to do everything and he's good at everything. And those started in 89. So what I'm fucking saying is, I think it's pretty clear. Nike are a bunch of thieves. And the only reason Bo Jackson has a career is because of Kurt Henning's Mr. Perfect <laughs> vignettes. I think it's clear as fucking day. Well, goddamn, pal. At the beginning of every broadcast, we put the innovators in sports entertainment. <laughs> do you think I put them on there just for an accident of branding? Of course we are. We are the innovators of sports entertainment. We came up with those Bo Jackson vignettes. <laughs> That's why we are the innovators in sports entertainment. I will say his uh, shooting form in the yeah. basketball segment <laughs> was lacking. He dribbles up the court like a theater kid forced in middle school dim to bring up the ball as a point guard. <laughs> I mean, it might be a little cruel, but yeah, we roast the ones we love. There's the golf one. I think it might have been the, the next series of them, but you know, there's a funny story that Ken Patera told on a shoot interview one time about Kurt, like back in the AWA, I guess like Ken Patera and a couple other guys, they wanted to go golfing and they had an early morning tea time for whatever reason they were off on this particular day. And like, let's go, I'll go golfing because it was during the summertime and usually AWA didn't run a whole heck of a lot in the summertime because that's when people would be out doing shit. <laughs> so you're not going to run a wrestling show where it's going to be indoors. Yeah. So they're like, all right, let's go, go golfing. And it was an early tea time and Kurt showed up. Uh, smoking a joint with a beer in his hand and had dark sunglasses to cover how hungover he was. Nice. And Kurt wasn't much of a golfer. He goes like, oh, I've done it a couple times. We'll figure it out. <laughs> but I'm great. And, and then like, it like, might've been like Larry Zabisco and uh, Ken Patera, like guys that golf on a regular basis. And Larry, like he'll go out golfing just about every day if possible. And supposedly Kurt, who is smoking, drinking on every single hole and you know progressively getting more drunk is progressively playing better than all the rest of them <laughs> and nobody can figure out like how is he doing this like Fucking gimmick. He, he should be asleep right now but somehow he is still smoking a joint while like drinking profusely here at 7 a.m he's probably continued to drink on from the night before and he's out here just golfing like a madman i think shoot wise the football one's the most impressive what right to throw yourself a touchdown pass. 
I mean, the especially while you have a Minnesota Vikings player like watching, like yeah. heads for for cutaways, like. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part is when he throws the ball and he waits a second and look at him like, watch this shit. Yeah, it's so good. I, I think that's my favorite one. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I, sh- I sent Nick this, but there's a there's a vine of a 2014 high school football player who actually fucking does this. He throw, It's like a 40-yard pass. It looks legit. It might be special effects, but if he did, he, 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 got, he got me. But it's, it's pretty damn impressive. And then I like that the the pool one is at Vince McMahon's house and the hilarious part of that is like can you just picture Vince McMahon playing pool like there's no way he has enough patience for that and le- unless it's like large bumper cars like I don't see Vince McMahon like playing pool house. we got whack them all over here uh, rock them up Pat <laughs> we're playing old English rules on this one <laughs> like, like I feel like a pool table only exists in Vince McMahon's house, so when people put quarters on the on the table, he can just knock them off. Yeah. Harley <laughs> Race. I uh, wanted to go real quick. Hit uh, Kurt's first ever match. Even at, at very first match, Bobby Heenan is already in love with him. He says, "You know, his voice is even perfect. It has a nice melodious tone." And I'd never heard that phrase before. And this was a good one. Uh, Gorilla, when Kurt hits the perfect plex, Gorilla goes, oh, cradle suplex. He stole that from the original King, I think, and just totally buries Kurt with his finishing <laughs> move. And I don't know if we talked about it, but Harley Race basically did the perfect plex, and uh, Kurt attributes getting that finisher from Harley. I told that motherfucker, if you want a goddamn finisher, you get it from the greatest wrestler on God's green earth <laughs> so mr perfect would make his pay-per-view debut at 88 survivor series as jim duggan jake roberts ken patera tito santana and scott casey would take on kurt with andre the giant rick root dino bravo and harley race holy shit we have covered this entire team i had that in my notes too and i kind of cried yeah <laughs> Sorry, real quick. Who the fuck is Scott Casey? <laughs> Show fucking Scott Casey a little goddamn respect. This uh, 88 Survivor Series match itself is part of that brutal 88 card that's just tough to get through. This is, this is the best match on it, though. Andre takes the sacrificial DQ by choking the fuck out of Jake Roberts. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, Perfect gets the win and the pin over Jake the Snake, surviving the match with good old episode two of Tim Bellpot, Dino Bravo. I mean, that's a, that's a great heel pin for the win. You pin a guy who just got choked to death by Andre the Giant. This match is kind of important because this is Kurt rubbing shoulders with all these like mega star, mega hills, and I, I'm sure that did a lot of good for his new hillish image. Yeah, legitimized, legitimized him would be the word that I believe would be used to describe what they did with Kurt on this Survivor Series. Kurt would continue staying perfect on TV, beating Mick Carters like Coco Beware, the Red Rooster, Jimmy Snuka, and Bret Hart. He was eliminated from his first Royal Rumble by Hogan, and then he'd have his first WrestleMania match at WrestleMania Five. At WrestleMania 5, Mr. Perfect would rock his signature singlet, taking on the Blue Blazer from Parts Unknown, Alberta, Canada. It's another one of those, like, if they had more time, this would have been amazing. Yeah, I, I but, wish they would have gave him, like, 20 minutes. Yeah, it's Owens doing a bunch of cool stuff, and obviously Kurt selling his ass off for him. My real highlight was when uh, the beginning of the match, I think it's Gorilla or whoever's like, he looks perfect, and, and as soon as he says that, Kurt stumbles down the step to the ring. It's It's comic. But yeah, it's just one of the things where you just gotta get get him on the card. 
They're yeah. here. Get them on the card. Yeah. Perfect just needs a win because we're continuing this whole perfect streak. So, like, let's, let's get them on the card. Let's get them a win. Let's get them a win on pay-per-view. Let's get them a win on WrestleMania. Owen's going to make them look good. Owen's going to do a couple things. They're going to know how to do this. Just get them on the card. Next, Kurt stopped at SummerSlam 89 and beat the Red Rooster in just over three minutes. But by Survivor Series 89, Kurt had that good-ass intro music. He was pretty damn over as a hill, and he put a bow on his first year by being part of Rick Root's Survivor Series team to take on Roddy Piper's team. And just advice to any jobbers that are wrestling Kurt on Wrestling Challenge or Superstars, uh, don't ever go for a back body drop around the 85-second mark of the match because when you lean down, you're getting perfect plex, so don't <laughs> don't fucking do that. You didn't learn from any of the tape you watched to prepare, so please quit. 89 Survivor Series is also kind of an important match because, first of all, Mr. Perfect works like the entire thing and just takes a beating, but he ends up being the sole survivor and gets a clean pin on Jimmy Snuka. Kurt needed to look extra strong because at this point he was one of, if not the most overhill in the company, which meant he was about to feud with Hulk Hard R. Hogan. You're like, there's no R in Hogan. Oh. <laughs> there's a lot of R's in Terry. <laughs> Terry. Terry. That's it. Yeah, Terry. That's what Nick meant. Yeah. <laughs> now that October, Mr. Perfect had become on-screen pals with the genius Lanny Poffo, who would take kind of a manager role for Kurt. You know, this is back in the day when being an intellectual genius meant you could write poetry that rhymes. So, <laughs> hey, you can do that shit. You're a fucking genius. I am the genius. I am world-renowned. <laughs> Um, one clip you have to look up is Mr. Perfect and the Genius on Regis and Kathy Lee. There's a moment where Regis, say, wonders about the state of the relationship or friendship between the Genius and Mr. Perfect. And he remarks to the Genius about how the Genius is looking at Perfect. He's like, look at the way he's looking at him. And the Genius has a beat. And he actually says, Regis, I am a monogamous heterosexual. Are you questioning? And then Regis immediately jumps in. No, 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 no. I'm not questioning anything. And it's just th this moment of just the genius like, did Regis just call me gay on the morning show? And Kurt just blows by it, treats it like nothing, just keeps doing his thing. It's it's beautiful. <laughs> it's a picture Regis. Like, so let me tell you, perfect. Genius. Yeah, look at each other. Yeah, look at, yeah, make it like a good couple right here. I like what's going on here. Yeah, holding hands possibly. Maybe hanging out. Maybe long drives. What do you got going on here? Tell me about it. I'm Regis. Talk to me now. Talk to me. I'm Regis. <laughs> it's not that far off. Kayfabe wise, two days after Survivor Series, November 25th, Kurt would be in Lanny's corner as he took on Hulk Hogan on Saturday night's main event. It was actually filmed about a month earlier. But they lied about it, and it's stuff like this that give conspiracy theorists the fuel in their they're not really hitting each other argument. <laughs> Kurt walks out about halfway through the match, and when the ref isn't looking, Kurt clocks Hulk with the title belt, causing him to get counted out, giving the win to the genius. Then, genius and perfect steal the WWF championship, and at the end of the show, perfect destroys the title belt. Then Kurt issues a challenge and tells Hulk that he's going to give him the perfect defeat. Not only does he destroy the belt with a hammer, but like the genius is doing like a can can dance and in the background. He's singing opera the whole fucking time. <laughs> just just to be weird. Because I'm it's the like, genius and I'm just I'm also weird. When you're genius, you're just weird. You wear this long toga type robe and just You're an eccentric motherfucker. Yeah. It's, and we didn't bring it up. There's one of the vignettes. I think it's one of the golfing one. Kurt's, Kurt hits a really good drive, and then the genius just does a backflip for the fucking <laughs> reason. It's like, uh, okay. Because that's what monogamous straight men do. 
Did you know that, Micah? Yeah, I, I like how he worked in the monogamous part, too. <laughs> Next up for Mr. Perfect would be 1990s Royal Rumble. And 90s Royal Rumble is best remembered for the first ever showdown between Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan, which would overshadow the big showdown between Mr. Perfect and Hogan, both happening during the actual Rumble match. Mr. Perfect would enter at number 30, would go straight for Hulk, and the final four would end up being Hercules, Rick Rude, Perfect, and Hogan. Rude takes out Hercules, leaving the Robbinsdale boys to double-team Hulkster. However, Hulk ducks a Rick Rude clothesline, causing Rick to clock Perfect, sending him over onto the apron. Hulk then whips Rude into the rope that Perfect is holding down, trying to get up. Rick goes over, leaving Perfect and Hogan to go one-on-one, and for... Still a newish character in the WWF. This is a pretty big moment for him. Just the fact that Perfect gets number 30, I love. I just Because he gets the perfect number, it's that booking to the gimmick where it's like when a Million Dollar Man got the last, or got number 30 and one of them because he obviously paid everybody yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. It's like the perfect number. Um, I, I love that goofy little shit. Eventually, Hogan eats a perfect plex, but right away, Hulk's up, chunks Kurt out, LOL, Cena wins. Can we talk about... Kurt doing the perfect plex at a Royal Rumble. <laughs> and then holding the bridge. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know it still gets a pop, but uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> About a week later, they aired Saturday night's main event 25, January 27th, 1990. Uh, Mr. Perfect and the Genius would take on Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. And Hulk Hogan did a small package during this match, so you know it's good. <laughs> it's like Hogan in Japan. <laughs> Perfect looked super strong again against uh, Hulk Hogan. But uh, after this match, we get another big Warrior and Hulk Hogan scuffle, which again overshadowed anything Mr. Perfect hoped to do at this point in his career. And I think this match is the origin moment of the Ultimate Warrior's homophobia because there's a moment where the genius celebrates and he's dancing around all effeminate and stuff. And there's this moment where Warrior just stares at him. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, it's like it it just, it was, it built right there. It was festering and it just started to grow right in that moment. You want to know a fucking underrated (laughs) spot in this match? Uh there's that big moment where uh, Kurt does the perfect plex and then he stops the count yeah, and then tags good. in. Right. He's holding the fucking perfect plex yeah, and, and then <laughs> grabs the referee's hand to stop the count. It I is... was like, holy fuck, man. That is insane. And then he holds up one of his legs too just to yeah, show up. It's, it's, it was one of the coolest things. And then no one ever brings that up. It <laughs> is fucking gorgeous. Now we get into Mr. Perfect's first ever singles loss, which is kind of confusing and also kind of wasted. Mr. Perfect did take some losses at house shows. He even took some pins, but this is pre-internet days, and us dumb marks were none the wiser. So his first ever loss on the books would be against Ultimate Warrior, a match that aired on the MSG network. And this is a fun match. Uh, Perfect puts on a bumping clinic as always. He makes Warrior look great, eventually eats the dreaded press slam splash combo and loses. This match happened March 19th, 1990, but it wouldn't actually be broadcast until after April 1st, WrestleMania 6. According even to WWE now, like on Kurt's DVD, uh, the match against him and Terry Taylor has Mick Foley and Michael Cole commentating, and they've started the storyline that the Warrior is Mr. Perfect's first loss. So they've already they're rewriting history, and they don't they don't they don't care about Brutus because even now they think it's because he's Brutus the fucking barber beefcake. <laughs> All right, once you become a fucking Zodiac, you're dead to us. (laughs) So at WrestleMania 6, Perfect would take on Broodeye, who Perfect had attacked after Beefcake's Royal Rumble match against the Genius to kind of set up the feud. Uh, 
Perfect makes Brutus look like Bucks, but in the end, Mr. Perfect would lose his first pay-per-view match to Brutus the Barber Beefcake right in front of goddamn Mary Tyler Moore, who was in attendance. So they didn't make a huge deal out of losing to Brutus since they already had a show in the can that was going to credit Warrior, which they also kind of didn't make that big of a deal about him losing. And letting Warrior break the streak was kind of wasted too because at this point, how more over could the Ultimate Warrior fucking be? Like, Why not do that match on a pay-per-view or Hogan on a pay-per-view or, I, I, or at least a Saturday night's main event? Yeah, right. I don't know. Listen, we're not too far removed from Brutus and the no-holds-barred Christmas, okay? Like, he stood side-by-side side with Hulk Hogan in a cage match against Zeus and the Macho King. It's true. It's true. I mean, he's white hot. He's, he's hot as Brutus. Like, if you're going to lose to any incarnation in Brutus the Barber Beefcake at any point in his career, it has to be this time at WrestleMania 6. He ain't. I mean, it's not like he lost to Brutus the Barber Beefcake in WCW in 1999. Like, oh my God. I want to give it up to Nick for not. I thought you were going to be a lot more irate and maybe unhinged talking about that segment. So. I I deleted a lot of words that would have ended this podcast <laughs> and well, just decided to just deliver the information. Yeah, but, and as legend goes, you know, Brutus, you know, was the weed carrier for Hulk. <laughs> WrestleMania six took place in Toronto, so he had to bring a WrestleMania size amount of marijuana across the border, and you have to get some sort of like reward for that. <laughs> I guess that's true. So like. Come on for one of the biggest wrestling matches in Hulk Hogan's career, which is to put over the Ultimate Warrior. So it all—it's all trickle down on economics. Oh, so much conspiracy thinking. I love it. Perfect's next big match would be finally getting a one-on-one meeting with Hulk Hogan on the April twenty-eighth Saturday Night Main Event number twenty-six from Austin, Texas. So of course Vince and Jesse the Body start the show indoors, riding fucking horses. <laughs> That's great. Again, uh, Perfect sells his ass off. He eventually hits Hulk with the Perfect Plex, but he hulks up, big boot, leg drop, and Perfect takes his third loss on TV in about a month. And I also like to point out, anytime someone kicks out of the Perfect Plex, that's the first time anyone's ever kicked out of the Perfect Plex. Every time. Following this loss to Hulk, Perfect would ditch the genius, but after taking all these losses back to back to back, they had to do something to build Mr. Perfect back up. You can't walk around calling yourself perfect after losing a bunch of matches because then you're just chill sunning. <laughs> that's, that's for you, Micah. <laughs> uh, I mean, if chill roasts us on his thing for two minutes, it's totally worth the, the eyes on us, but I doubt that. So, as you know, Warrior won the WWF title at WrestleMania 6, so he had to drop the IC belt. So in May of 1990, WWF held a tournament to crown a new champion. Mr. Perfect would beat Jimmy Snuka in the quarterfinals on May 5th. Good. And then uh, beat two-time Intercontinental Champion Tito Shantana in the finals on May 19th on an episode of Superstars. If you're going to do the Jesse Ventura voice, you've got to call him Chico. Chico Santana. You just can't go Chico You had it in Santana. the notes, Nick, but you're not going to say it on the podcast? What yeah, the like you, can't, you can't do the Jesse voice and then just be like, no, Chico Santana. I'm going to be politically correct on this one. <laughs> you're just quoting someone. 
Uh, one thing I love about this match, it's it's the little things, but there's a hammerlock reversal exchange that probably goes three deep each, and it's so lightning quick. It was another, holy shit, this is, it, it gives you, I forgot how good Tito was, I guess. I need to watch more Tito, but Kurt and his hammerlock exchange, damn. And if I'm not mistaken in this match, when they awarded the belt to him, didn't they award him like the tag team title belt? So uh, I didn't pick up on that. They didn't have the IC belt because they didn't have the IC belt. I think that's the ca- like the, the that version that I've so. seen on Coliseum Video because I I think I have it on one of the Coliseum videos that I have on the shelf over there. Yeah. And um, I I think that was the case that they just they didn't have the IC belt, so they had <laughs> yeah, the the tag belt, which is also what they did when Ric Flair was told that he couldn't hold up the NWA you know big gold big belt guy. anymore. Is they just had him walk out with the like one of the tag belts and they blurt it out but you can clearly see it's the tag belt side plates on it because they wanted to continue that angle of the real world's champion but they couldn't put the belt on tv anymore so the blot but you can clearly see it's a tag belt so they're also need a belt to fill in for this intercontinental belt like it's like yeah just use the tag belt which goes to show it makes a lot of sense how little WWF WWE has cared about tag team wrestling over the years. They're like, yeah, we just we just need something that looks like a belt. Yeah, put the tag belts on. I know people are fighting over this belt, and we have like you know Tully, Arn, Demolition, the Rockers, Heart Foundation, some of the best tag teams of all time. And I know they're fighting for this belt, but just throw it out there. We need we just need a prop. We need if, a prop. If we lose the belt, we'll just get some cardboard and magic markers and fucking make a new one. Yeah, you know, dem, you know, Demolition Smash. I know the tag belt means a lot to you, but can I have Real quick, we need it for the next segment. Okay, we need a belt. We just need a belt. We just need a belt. So about three fourths of the way through the Tito match, Bobby Heenan would come down to the ring, and after perfect wins, he grabs the mic. He announces that not only do you have a perfect Intercontinental Champion, he has the perfect manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yeah, this is one of my favorite pairings ever. Like both are killers on the mic. Both are hilarious. Both have great minds for wrestling, and as perfect. As perfect was, I don't. That's uh, as perfect as Kurt. Well, as good as Kurt. Uh, as good as perfect was on the mic. As perfect as this sentence is going. <laughs> as all right as he is. Um, uh, he wasn't quite up there with like a Rick Rude. Uh, so I don't mind him having a mouthpiece to share the spotlight with. From here, Kurt would roll through some job guys on Wrestling Challenge and Superstars, and he even beat Tito in a rematch on Saturday Night's Main Event Twenty Seven. And one of the best rewatching Kurt stuff. There's a, there's a moment during this match where Perfect has Tito in just a normal chin lock. Heenan right next to the mic, right next to the camera, blatantly screams to Kurt, You want to choke him? I think Kurt nods, but then Heenan immediately distracts Earl Hebner, and then Mr. Perfect immediately begins choking Tito's antenna. And it's just Bobby at his most heelish and just cheating blatantly in front of the cameras and not giving a shit. It's, it's beautiful heel work. At 1990's SummerSlam, Kurt was supposed to have another match with Brutus the Barber, but he got hurt. And I believe this is when he got his face all smashed up from the jet ski accident. Was it a jet ski? Uh, it was hang glide, or no. Parasailing. Parasailing. Yes. Just, like, just stand on the beach and you're going to catch somebody <laughs> coming in at the speed of fucking light with a <laughs> kneecap just right to your face. Just getting your old face caved in. You know, Does that make you feel better, Nick? Yeah, yeah, Kurt yeah, the yeah. Brutus one got Kurt's first one. So uh, Brutus had to be replaced, and in stepped the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Eric. They have a very short five-minute match. Kurt gets slingshotted into the corner, goes over and hits the pole, which is like a favorite spot of his, and Kerry hits him with the claw and the tornado punch 
One, two, three. I find myself now, after learning about Carrie, just this whole match, I'm just staring at his right foot <laughs> the whole fucking time and just, like, seeing if I can see, like, it move or it, it, I, I couldn't really notice it. If people don't know, Carrie had gotten a motorcycle accident and gotten his right foot amputated, or after it got injured and then he neglected it, and then it got amputated, but the... It's pretty much all his tornado matches. He has no real right foot, right? Yeah. It's way past that. I, I think it's funny that you're looking at his foot. I'm looking at his eyes to see how fucked up he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually my my go-to when I see a Gary Von Eric match. How fucked up is he? Like every Survivor Series, he's always in the wrong foot. Like he's always like in the way. If, if you watch, any, <laughs> sorry man, sorry, sorry. Yeah, and pretty much every Survivor Series match you ever see of Gary Von Eric, he's in the fucking way. I don't know how anybody can be that much in the fucking way. Like I get it. Like it's like people are running around but like carrie just stay in the fucking corner yep. like if you know you're in the way every single fucking year of those things stop being in the fucking way and just it's yeah. hard when you have no memory yeah <laughs> and like i love carrie and like i loved carrie von eric i love the texas tornado this time so much in fact some kids smarted off to me at like at uh, mark street's birthday party in grade school and I remember, like, wrestling was on, and we were watching wrestling, and I just saw, like, the Texas Tornado do that leg sweep that he does. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, fucking Chris Edwards was just mouthing off to me, and I'm like, fuck this. And I did this fucking Texas Tornado leg sweep on him. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And he fucking took the best bump in the fucking world. <laughs> <laughs> like, completely took him out legit and took, like, a back bump in the middle of Mark Street's, like, living <laughs> living room. It was the greatest like, athletic achievement of my entire life. And I, and I was a Division One scholarship athlete. <laughs> you peaked too early, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> so after dropping the title, Kurt would keep on feuding with the Tornado. They'd stop off at Survivor Series where Kurt was a team captain with Demolitions, Axe Crush, and Smash looking like a bunch of BDSM dads. They would lose to the Warriors of Ultimate Warrior, Texas Tornado, and LOD. Get it? They're all Warriors. Get it? (laughs) The modern day Warrior. Get it? Get it? Road Warriors. Get it? Please get it. Get it. (laughs) I'm going to scream it till you do. Was Shane McMahon I, a ref for this? I, I I saw your note, but I forgot to look when I watched it, yeah, and I be. wasn't he's gonna doing, watch it again. He's doing ref stuff at this time. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, what the fuck? I, what I, the fuck? I, I, I think he's also in '89 as well. Okay, Jesus. yeah, yeah. He's 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 definitely around and doing ref stuff at this. This time. was one thing that uh, as as much as they were pushing Kurt, it was like two some Survivor Series. He got the final pin, and his team won. And in this one, he at least put on a good showing against Warrior. I forgot how much they were just, you know, pushing him in every avenue of everything. Perfect would keep chasing Carrie for the belt, first losing at November 24th MSG Network show before facing him again on December 15th Superstars. So before this match, Ted DiBiase had paid off the fink to be the special guest ring announcer. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> since there's no history of millionaires paying off WWF officials to be ring announcers, something was up. What was up? Ted's foot up Carrie's ass. Texas Tornado had slighted Ted on an episode of Brother Love. So the Million Dollar Man would interfere in this match like three different times. Can, can you tell me why he couldn't just come out to be a commentator and do the same <laughs> thing? <laughs> why did he have to pay to be the guest ring announcer? Because he's the Million Dollar Man. He, oh, he needs to manage his money better. <laughs> so Earl Hebner takes a fucking brutal ref bump in this. It, I thought he like died. Ted runs in while Tornado has Mr. Perfect covered. Ted smashes him with the belt. Kurt then hits Tornado with a perfect plex and for the second time became the Intercontinental Champion. 
But Ted does get to he he does fulfill his duties as guest ring announcer and announces Mr. <laughs> Perfect as the new Intercontinental Champion <laughs> to throw on the end there. Rolling into 1991, Kurt would enter the Royal Rumble at 23 and get tossed by the Bulldog. He'd face Texas Tornado in a rematch on Superstars February 2nd, where he lost by countout keeping the belt. Perfect would make his next big title defense against the Big Boss Man at WrestleMania 7, and this is low-key one of my favorite Perfect and Boss Man matches. <laughs> it's really damn good. I'm a big fan of the Rodney King references in the pre-match promos, <laughs> where basically Heenan says, you want to see some revenge on some cops? Then watch Mr. Perfect beat the shit out of the Big Boss Man. Like, whoa, Heenan, that is amazing. That, like, perked me up on my couch. I was like, oh, whoa. yeah, what's this now? <laughs> And he goes, also, too, let me tell you about Ethiopia. <laughs> but, yeah, like, Boss Man and, and, and Perfect were actually very good friends and very excited about this match. And that's when you're, like, a wrestler and you're wrestling somebody who's your friend, you get very excited about it. And, right. and you start coming up with spots and do things. We can do this, we can do this. And, yeah. and for someone like Kurt, who's already unselfish as he is and a tremendous performer, like getting in there with his friend, who's also very much a tremendous performer and unselfish as well. I mean, that's what part of the thing that, that makes it work so well. You know, sometimes, as we'll probably discuss later in this podcast, somebody who's your good friend, you don't always have the great match with. But in this case, it, it most certainly is true. Uh, also, side note, if there's anything I want to do in professional wrestling, <laughs> you know, of all the things that I've done, the, the, the one thing that I would love to do the most in this world is have uh james drake jd drake dress up like the big boss man like i can't tell oh, he, <laughs> he would crush that I, that is perfect for him i've i've solely want to book a, a, a costume show solely <laughs> just for that fucking purpose i feel like that needs to happen in this fucking world at some point that's time. made for Dude, him you you know how uh around halloween every year there's a a lot of cities do like deck comics they'll mm -hmm. dress up they'll do bits like them if you put on a wrestling show like that, that would be fucking uh, awesome. Has that been just done solely before? for James Drake to dress up oh. like the big boss man? Yeah, 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 literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Book him for that. We has that been done could, before? We could do like the 10 Bell Pod dead wrestler show. That would be a whole thing. We, we should talk about this off air. Right? Yeah, we are. <laughs> Is that just us getting sued into a yeah. <laughs> You would have to call him like the large boss guy or something, but... It, he's still coming out. The, from Cobb County. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's still coming out the same music. <laughs> it's still happening. Uh, Jake, just real quick, the, Jake spoke on being friends and knowing each other, knowing each other's ring work. There's a great moment where Perfect does his little, uh, he gets tossed and he does his backwards slide out of the ring where he tries to get out, but he crotches himself. And you can tell he's not going to get there unless he clearly pushes himself way too much. And Ray realizes this, realizes Kurt's kind of in a bad spot. And he immediately pops out of the ring, grabs Kurt's legs, and jams him into the ring pose to get the crotch shot but it, it shows one wrestler knowing another wrestler and covering for them immediately so that the business doesn't look bad ray especially impressed the shit out of me recognizing that moment in a split second and fixing it right right as this match was about to jump next level like all-time great five-star shit they uh send out barbarian haku to attack big boss man and get kurt dq <laughs> yep, the, the ending's kind of blah but yeah Match is fantastic. From here, Kurt stayed on the house show loops and kept crushing cans on Superstars tapings. By June, Mr. Perfect was starting a feud with the British Bulldog, but this is when he suffered a back injury, the back injury 
that would haunt Kurt Henning for the rest of his career. Apparently, he got injured because the turnbuckles weren't adjusted correctly. Have you ever hit a corner where the turnbuckles weren't adjusted right? Um, it can happen. Like if it's off center, um, or if like the padding isn't like on correctly. If it's like like a, like a corner, it, it all really depends, and that, that's why like it's it's very important. Like you see, sometimes the referee like come in and check the turnbuckle pads and kind of readjust them. You know, that's just not the referee doing bullshit because right. sometimes the referee is the one that helps set up the ring and he might notice something's not right gotcha. with the corner. And sometimes as a wrestler, like something will happen mid match and you won't see it and you won't recognize it and nobody will recognize it until like, ooh, uh, that's a little weird or oh, the spot in the ring is a little rough or ooh, I got to pay attention to this board. This board kind of moved or, you know, if it's if it's off center a little bit, like that's something that, that, that happens from time to time. No matter how he got hurt, Perfect suffered a broken tailbone and bulged disc. Oh, sh- I didn't know it was that. Jesus. Forcing him to retire from professional wrestling. But he was still Intercontinental Champion. <laughs> that belt had to get dropped. So Perfect pushed through. He made short wrestling challenge and superstars tapings in July, right before SummerSlam, August 26, 1991, when Mr. Perfect would face Bret Hart in Madison Square Garden. This match is pardon the pun fucking perfect yeah Uh, and remember he did it with a career ending injury he worked through unimaginable pain just to give bret hart the biggest break in his career at this point almost broke his fucking back with the sharpshooter like leaning all the way back the way he did with all the weight like that's that's what threw me off because the the ending is so like he doesn't even cinch it in before hebner ring calls for the bell which always felt like eh but then he still kind of hits it and i don't don't know i think it it always feels a little off i think that's probably hebner recognizing a kurt's hurt you know i'm gonna give it a quick you right. know, ring as yeah, fast as sense. possible. Um, but I can imagine Kurt, you know, and that's the thing about like back injuries. Like I've had a, a, a dinged up back before and, and like not been able to move. But then once you get out there and you start like warming up a little bit, you start right, doing right, a couple right. spots, you start feeling a little bit better, you get in the mo- movement. And then when you know you're kind of fucked up and you don't know like how you're going to feel afterwards and you know this is a big moment and you're trying to put somebody over, sometimes you get that adrenaline flowing. And I, I can probably picture Kurt going like, just motherfucker, like screaming like real hard. <laughs> but then like the person who's not probably feeling as much adrenaline as the wrestlers the referee who's recognizing like hey this guy's got a fucked up back i'm gonna ring it as fast as possible or maybe even kurt before the match or even brett before the match like hey make sure you ring it pretty quick on the sharpshooter he's got a fucked up back but then he gets out there and he's like cinch it in motherfucker (laughs) like you know like bring it because he's got all that adrenaline Mm. going and if you know you're going to be done for a while you want to make sure that this one looks as good as possible so it could have been a situation like that they probably told him ahead of time like hey man just maybe ring it a little fast because i'm pretty fucked up but then you get out there and you get moving and loosened up and then of course you get to the back and you're like what the fuck did i do (laughs) I gotta say, uh, the best hair pull spots exchanges in uh-huh. history. I mean, the way they wrench it and the way they throw it, it, it feels like shoot hair pulls. Um, also, as good as Brett and Perfect are, you gotta put over the commentating on this match because Heen and Gorilla and Piper, them combined with the crowd, it's one of the most exciting, urgent oh shit, what's going to happen next combinations of the crowd, the commentators, and the wrestlers that I can remember when I rewatch this. I, I I didn't remember it being this good. Well, in the tearing of the singlet, it's also kind of yeah. symbolic. Like, he knows he's going to be on the shelf for a while, and he's just like, fuck it, just 
fucking tear all this shit to fucking shreds. <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. Fuck this singlet. I'm not going to be wearing this for a while. Uh-huh. Fuck it. You know, and just, just if you're going to put somebody over, fucking go all out. Yep. And that's that's what he did. One thing for all wrestling nerds that uh, like to see something pretty interesting, there are two house shows recorded of Brett and Kurt. 42389 and 42489. It's a little bit earlier, but it's uh it's two house show matches. You can it's kind of like, you know, you go see a comedian one night and you see him working on his stuff and then you see him the next night and he kind of tinkers it and he messes with it and he plays with his art and you get to see these two dudes in back-to-back nights doing house shows just trying out this match that they have worked on and seeing the slight adjustments. Another nerd shit, Brett dodges a drop toehold better than i have ever seen in my life it's the best i've ever seen that spot executed and you get commentary on both and it's it's just cool to see two artists playing with their work was it the best there is the best there was <laughs> and the best there ever we dodging of a drop toehold hell yeah alley-oop SummerSlam 91 would be Mr. Perfect's last match for well over a year. He'd cash in on his Lloyds of London insurance policy and then spend the rest of 91 and the majority of 92 rehabbing. And that is where we will pick up on Mr. Perfect Part Dose. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tim Bell Pod. Thanks for everyone giving money to our Patreon. Uh, support us for free by leaving us a rating and a review to help trick those goddamn algorithms. Check out Six Squirrel Studios for all your podcast sound and distribution needs. Find us on social media at Tim Bell Pod. Jake is Man Scout Manning on all the things. Micah is J Trotter twenty seven on Twitter. I'm Nicolessa on all the social medias except for Facebook because I will not bend the knee to the reptilians that promote unfact checked memes to control us. Keep going. Fight the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs>